Hello everyone and welcome to another episode in the Shared Ireland podcast series. Today we are bringing you something totally different. We have a star-studded lineup here, we have four guests and the only subject we'll be talking about today is legacy. Our first guest is an old friend of Shared Ireland. It gives Shared Ireland great pleasure to welcome back Reverend David Latimer. Welcome David. Great to be with you, thank you. It's her second guest, first time on a Shared Ireland podcast. She is a journalist with the Understand News and works for the group Relatives for Justice. I'm delighted to welcome along Andre Morphy. Welcome, Andre. Thank you. It's also her third guest, first time on a Shared Ireland podcast. She is Sinn Féin's spokesperson for Victims and Legacy and MLA for the Midwest area. Delighted you could join us, Linda Dillon. Our fourth and final guest today is no stranger to Shared Ireland. He's an ex-Victims Commissioner, ex-party leader of the Ulster Unions, and current MLA for a Strangford area. Great to see you again, Mike Nesbitt. Thank you very much indeed. Interesting that all my bullet points are Mike used to be. <laughs> oh, all in the past tense, Mike. <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> You're not going back, no. Um, guys, can I just take this opportunity before we go any further in this podcast? Um, Shared Ireland and our listeners would like to thank you all for giving up your valuable time today and travelling to see us here. It's very much appreciated. So, as I said in the introduction here, we are here to talk about one subject today, and that subject is legacy. So, if you don't mind, I'll come to you first, Andre Murphy. Could you outline for our listeners, maybe Andre, what is legacy and what is your assessment of things at the moment? Thank you. I suppose I'm really glad to have a conversation about legacy in the context of your wider conversations about where this island will be in a number of years and how we can all contribute to that, as sometimes legacy is seen as a very separate subject. So we kind of start at the beginning of maybe where we started having peace agreements and the Good Friday Agreement and the subject of victims of the conflict or what we now understand as being legacy, the issues that affect people who suffered conflict harms, was barely mentioned at all. It was really just lip service paid to it. And then during the ensuing years, you saw um, really a piecemeal approach to those issues that people who'd suffered violations had. So whether it was um, at Weston Park agreeing that there would be an inquiry into Bloody Sunday, inquiries into um, separate issues where collusion was um, alleged, such as the killing of Billy Wright or the killing of uh, Rosemary Nelson, you you saw that kind of piecemeal approach. Then with the growing... um, The growing influence, I suppose, of victims' voices during um, the years, um, we saw that there were more kind of investigations happening. You saw the introduction of the historical inquiries team, which uh, was part of the new PSNI, looking at historic cases where, where killings had occurred and no injuries. Then um, that that failed because it didn't meet human rights obligations and was acting in an unfair and biased way in terms of state killings. And so then there was a wider conversation about how the past was infecting the institutions in Stormont and was having a detrimental effect in wider processes because uh, such a huge part of our community had been left behind by the peace process. So then began a concerted effort to try and find mechanisms to deal with the past. Um, you saw the Hasso Sullivan talks having a concentrated approach. Sorry, actually, first came the Eames Bradley appointed panel, which um, I think was very important. You saw people in the civic community being appointed, including church leaders, where they had a comprehensive approach to the issues that were basically framed as legacy, whether it was issues of reparations, whether it was issues of uh, people with injuries, or people who had lost loved ones during the conflict, and they came up with a number of recommendations. Um, That entire report was really dismissed because one of the 50-odd recommendations was, was contentious, whether all people who had been bereaved would receive a payment um, under its terms. So it fell because of the controversy around that, rather than people weighing in behind the other recommendations that were very much around um, the experience of people who'd suffered harms. 
that it that failed then everyone moved on and then of course the past came to visit us again and we saw the Hassel Sullivan and um, the concerted effort where there were party talks with two um, interlocutors from America appointed Megan Sullivan and Richard Haas and they had the local politicians um, in the room and they came up with recommendations but they weren't agreed by the parties Richard Haas afterwards said it was because the British and Irish governments weren't in the room and it was only the parties so you didn't have their imprimatur and of course that didn't go away so the following year you have the two part the two governments in the room along with the parties looking at a number of issues after a very very contested year where um, the, the Stormont executive had had almost collapsed during that period and you um, had the Stormont House agreement and the Stormont House agreement had a series of recommendations but particularly around legacy they have remained sitting there since and have, if anything, become more contested over a period of time. Um, the issue of national security and how the British government interprets how they can meet the obligations under that act, but particularly under their obligations under the um, European Convention on Human Rights became very contested, where they will insert national security and it's contested whether that's human rights compliant or not. That has acted as, I suppose, it has, has acted as a smothering blanket in the words of a former Irish foreign minister and prevented us moving forward. So we are still in the same place. Our victims and survivors have responded to a consultation on the Stormont House Agreement itself, responded to a consultation around the, how the British government interprets that through their bill, and we still see no movement on. And for those families, they don't see human rights compliance, they don't see progress on, on um, their rights as whether they've suffered injury or whether they've suffered bereavement and many of them are dying off and so new generations of the same family are coming forward saying no we will carry on. It's, it doesn't fit well in what we call a peace process that we have not met our obligations to victims and survivors of the conflict and um, words then start being introduced like toxic or intransigent or what Whatever those words that are put there, which is placed onto victims and survivors, which is very unfortunate, rather than society taking responsibility for meeting their obligations. Thank you very much, Rhonda, for that very comprehensive um, outlay there. Mike, I've seen you um, nodding there. I don't know whether you were nodding in agreement or disagreeing when Andre was speaking, but could you maybe give us um, your assessment of what legacy means and where we're at at the moment, maybe? Well, I think this is a fundamental question uh, that needs to be answered, and that's why I was nodding in, in agreement with Andre. The, the, the Belfast Good Friday Agreement did many things, and, and to, to a large extent it was um, the art of the possible, uh, and the possible wasn't everything. And I think one of the, the difficulties was that the two governments walked away at that point rather than opening a new file marked unresolved or too difficult to handle and they should have come back to it yeah. after a reasonably short short period. Um, but politically, I think, as politicians, we tend to look on dealing with the past and the legacy of the past in a much more narrow frame than most others in society. And what I mean by that is we tend to think only of truth, justice and acknowledgement, mm -hmm. which are very, very important for those who want it. But there are other legacy issues. Yeah. Uh, there are those... We talk about the, the lost lives, of course we do, but what about the lost opportunities for the living victims and survivors? Yeah. Lost opportunities in employment, in education, in social life, in family life and all the rest. Uh, and we need, therefore, I think, to, as politicians, ask ourselves two fundamental questions. What do we mean by dealing with the past? Mm -hmm. Is it just truth, justice and reconciliation, or is it broader? And secondly, and this is perhaps the critical one, for whose benefit do we want to deal with the past? Now, you could say it's for the benefit of the victims and survivors of the Troubles, and that's, of course, perfectly valid, and it will take you down a path. Mm -hmm. I think you could equally validly say we need to deal with the past so that society can move on. Yeah. And that is not necessarily a parallel path. Mm -hmm. So you have to make a, de a decision about that. Now, for example, where it isn't a parallel path is, you might say for society to move on, we need to draw a line, have an amnesty or whatever. But there are victims who want truth and justice. Mm -hmm. now, they know at this remove from when their loved one was killed or injured that the chances of a conviction are maybe a million to one. But I think there's all the difference in the world between letting them clutch to that million to one shot and extinguishing them. 
And as a politician, I'm not prepared to look them in the eye and say, I am removing that million to one shot. So, so would I be right in saying there, just listening to you, that you would be against a general amnesty for everyone? I am against an amnesty because if you have done wrong, you should be made amenable. There's a question about whether uh, you should go to jail after you've been found guilty. And I notice, for example, with one of the Bloody Sunday families are now saying they would like to see a conviction, but they wouldn't like to see the individual then. Yeah. Put to jail. Andre mentioned the various talks processes, and, and to my mind, one of the difficulties that we failed to get over the line was we have this political maxim where nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Mm -hmm. And to an extent, I can understand why we have that. You don't want one party getting the thing that they want, banking it, and then putting their hand up to refuse to, to agree to anything else that the other parties may want. But it just seems to me that in, in the situation we have here, and you look at, at the broad range of, of services and needs of victims and survivors, nobody disagrees that mental health and well-being is absolutely massive. Absolutely. And I know we'll come back to that. Yeah. So why can't we say we will do something on mental health and well-being, even though we can't yet agree on the mechanisms on truth and justice? Get that part of it going. Because that gives us a bit of momentum. Okay. It says to the public we can actually agree on something, maybe not everything, but something, and maybe that gives us the impetus to go on and take the second bite uh, out of the elephant. Okay, thanks for that, Mick. I suppose I just want to um, bring everyone in here on the first question, and that is... Um, What's your assessment of legacy and where we're at at the moment, Linda? Dylan, please. Well, on, on some of what both Andre and Mike have said, I would have to say that I agree, and particularly on what Mike just said around what is legacy. You know, is legacy just about victims and survivors <coughs> and those who, who were injured and those who lost loved ones, or is it broader? And it actually was raised with me recently by ex-prisoners because they are part of the legacy. Right, right across the border, ex-prisoners, regardless from what background they come, they are part of our legacy. And what has happened to them, what has happened to their families, what has happened to their children, um, that is all part of our legacy. And, and sometimes we, I think we leave that bit out and we forget that those families too have suffered. And regardless of what you think of the ex-prisoner themselves, their families have done nothing. And their children have certainly suffered from the legacy of the conflict. So I think all of that we need to look at. And things as simple as travel. You know, young people who cannot travel to work, they can't travel to America, they can't travel to other countries because they're one or both of their parents are ex-prisoners. So I think that all of those things need to be, to be looked at as well. So there is a much broader thing, but the very difficult one for, for us all to deal with is around the, those who were killed and injured during the Troubles. And I think that obviously we're, we're currently in, in the midst of all the stuff around the, the pensions and the definition of a victim. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is vitally important, that that is a legal definition. It is not a Sinn Féin definition. It's not a political definition. It's a legal definition. And I don't think that we should open up that argument again because we have enough to disagree on. We have enough issues that we're finding real difficulties with. But that is, to me, would just be poisonous. And it is. it does come back to the fact that it is a legal definition. I think that, for me, I mean, there are many different narratives. We talk about there are two narratives. There are not two narratives. There are many, many different narratives. I deal with people from my community who were killed, who had loved ones killed by Republicans or were injured by Republicans or, you know, had, had injuries as a result of punishment beatings and, and many other issues. So th this is not a, as narrow as people would like to make it. I think that we do need to broaden it out. We do need to look at all of the issues. But Mike raised the issue of amnesty, and I mean, our party's position on that is very clear. There is no room for amnesty. There is no room for, for looking at this and saying that this is what we want, and totally disregarding what families out there and what those who have suffered most want. And I speak to families in my own community and, and from other communities, but even within my own community who have said, I don't care who it is that has carried out the, the killing or has injured your loved one. I want to see that family getting justice regardless of who they, they are. But I too want to be able to access the same justice. So if you're talking about families who have lost loved ones at the hands of state forces, regardless of whether they are area volunteers or whether they are non-combatants, they feel very much that they deserve to get the same treatment as those who are killed at the hands of Republicans or loyalists or anybody else. So I do think that we need to listen. And, and for me, the Stormont House mechanisms, they're not perfect. 
the, the you know this legislation is, is certainly not something that we agree with every single thing that is in it. It's far from perfect, but people did engage massively with the consultation process, mm -hmm. and we encouraged families, and, and we really had to do a lot of work in convincing a lot of people to engage with that process. And I think for us now to just disregard a process that the, all of those people did engage with and give their honest responses to and say that that's it, you did all of that and we encouraged you to do that and it did open up wounds. Mike talks about the mental health and well-being. It opened up wounds for people. I am quite certain that Andre's organisation and many other organisations, Seth and Fermanagh and all of the other organisations that are out there probably had to deal with people. You, you, mentioned, you mentioned there... Um, punishment beatings mm -hmm. you know again I would have forgotten about that it's very easy to dismiss and forget about these people and as Mike rightfully said you know the mental health and this it's a massive massive subject like and there's people walking about badly traumatized in society it's, it's, it's not just people and it's not just families it's communities Absolutely. yeah and we, we tend to approach mental health as a medicalized model and there's certainly room and a place for pills and tablets and, and for the National Health Service, but there are also societal interventions that are critical to deal with communities. If you take a map of the hotspots, the troubles, places like North Belfast, and then you take a, a contemporary, a modern map of mental health issues and those hotspots, you've got a match. Yeah, North absolutely. Belfast, for example. So it's not about just individuals and families, it is about intervening for communities to find a way for them to deal with what they've had to suffer. Just to finish off um, by introducing our fourth guest, Reverend David Latimer. I've got to ask you the same question, Reverend David. What does legacy mean to you and what's your assessment of things at the moment and what needs to be done to move this issue further down the road? Yeah, big questions. Big questions. Um, and it's clear nobody has the answers. And certainly the church, like every other uh, body coming to uh, explore and drill down into this uh, difficult, complex arena that we call the past. We're all struggling. Churchill, I'm going to quote something he said uh, post-war, I think it was 1940, but he said, of this I can be certain that if we open a quarrel between the past and the present, we shall find that we have lost the future. And therein is my great worry. Um, I am not sure that the political parties or the people who should even be handling the past currently. I think perhaps um, it's asking too much of them and their traditions and their uh, voting uh, constituencies to deliberate on this. So the question is who should then? I would be inclined to see this as something that should be handled by an independent body because um, I don't think, um, as we have looked at the journey we've been on since the euphoria that was so apparent uh, at the signing of the Good Friday Agreement and former enemies coming together, Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness sitting together in that IKEA couch chuckling <laughs> and it sent ripples of hope Somewhere along the line, we need to discover a bit of equilibrium between memory and hope. The memory uh, has, is dominating and it's eclipsing hope. And, 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 and therefore, therefore, we're in a maze. I was talking about this on Sunday in my church. And I was, I was, I was saying to the folks, we've got ourselves into a maze. And nobody can find the exit. But that's not good enough. That doesn't mean we have to give up or we have to stop. I think we have to look to explore, are there other ways, are there other avenues, or there are different possibilities that can be used to address uh, this painful um, aspect of our journey here and this wee part of uh, the United Kingdom and at the top of Ireland uh, so that we can... Um, uh, breach the banks of the river of hurt and allow people whose eyes are just totally blinded by what has happened to catch a glimpse of, 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 of something that will allow them to see people are listening to us and people 
that are listening are people maybe that can help to point us forward? I'm very struck by what David is saying. Um, the day after the Bloody Sunday um, inquiry reported mm. and the incredible scene where the ministers go to, to the Bloody Sunday monument yeah. um, in a gesture of peace and reconciliation mm -hmm. that followed mm -hmm. the inquiry report was a real moment to me that was very, very emotional and said, the truth can set you free. Mm -hmm. And it really was, you know, people talked about the clouds lifting off Derry it's that true. day and, and what happened. And, you know, law was, was given its place and human rights were given their place so that those families could interrogate the mm -hmm. horrendous circumstances. There was an accountability and an accounting for mm -hmm. that from the British state after many, many years. Mm -hmm. And then once that process had taken its course, mm -hmm. you were able to see the processes of peace and reconciliation take a primary role. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that, you know, those kind of parallel processes where there's courage and generosity mm -hmm. can really can really happen. But you need to have human rights at the centre so that you do deliver to those whose rights have been violated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we have done so far is tried to have lots of narratives and lots of processes without mm -hmm. giving mm -hmm. um, human rights and the primacy of the rule of law their place. And once that happens, then I think those other processes come into their own and we can definitely build reconciliation. It's lovely that you um, draw on what happened um, uh, that day, yeah. that momentous day in June 2010, when David Cameron courageously yeah. offered a state apology. Um, I, I was there and I was I part of that group of clergy. I tell you, it was as if the clouds, Mike, had, had, had been pushed to the side and the sun came out. And I want to see the sun come out again for everybody. Yeah. Uh, for no matter who's pulled the trigger or what kind of bullet or bomb has interfered with, with human life and with families, we want to see the sun begin to shine for everybody. And, and, and I... I'm inclined to think, and I'd be interested to hear what the rest of you think, I'm inclined to think that that moment was a seminal moment when David Cameron yeah. apologised. Yeah. Now, in 1994, when Gusty Spence said those incredible words, uh, he was expressing abject and true remorse. My goodness, what words, what powerful words. The guilt and the shame that was felt by those who had been involved in visiting our country with terrible things. Now, <clears throat> I wonder if, as a prelude to whoever continues to unpack the difficulties of the past, that do we need a coming together of our whole community uh, to, to, if you like, have all the groups and the individuals on the stage who, yes. were, who were involved in, 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 in the past and them having the courage to hold their hands up and say, look folks, We've made a right mess of stuff, and it's just and, and, and it's together we've made a mess. And how do we get out of this hole? I think we have to say, our hands are dirty, our our hearts are impure. We're 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 ready to say, we got it wrong. We're 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 sorry. This, this and is maybe a theme, that would yeah. lance the boil. Well, it would certainly help, David. It's a, it's a theme that, that, that I have promoted for, for some time now. And by the way, I, I was in the Guildhall Square uh, that day as a journalist. And to witness the British Prime Minister being applauded yeah. by the families was the most remarkable thing. Because he said it was unjustified and, and unjustifiable. And I think those sort of acknowledgement statements are incredibly powerful. So. In Hass O'Sullivan and, and Stormont House when I was leading the, the Unionist Party, my view was one thing that we could do would be each leader, and I'm talking about the British government, the Irish government, the American administration, the local political parties, north and south of the border, and others, including the churches potentially, mm -hmm. could stand shoulder to shoulder on the steps of Stormont at the beginning, mm -hmm. not at the end of a process. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you make your acknowledgement statement at the beginning, I think it has a different dynamic, it has an authenticity to it. It says, I'm putting my hand up without yet knowing what I'm going to be deemed guilty of, as it were, by the panel, by the process or whatever it is. So from the unionist point of view, we ran the country non-stop for the first 51 years as a majoritarian party. No power sharing, it was us. You can't, you can't govern for one mandate. 
without getting it wrong, whether it's deliberate, accidental, whatever, you make serious mistakes as a government. Mm -hmm. So over 51 years, mm -hmm. of course, mm -hmm. did, did we say to nationalists, we want you in Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. here's why we want you, mm -hmm. we want to cherish you? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're a nationalist, you're going you're gonna to laugh out loud, if not choke right. at the very thought yeah. that we might have done that. Of course we didn't. Mm -hmm. So I would have been prepared to stand as a unionist leader and say, yeah, our hands aren't entirely clean on this, mm -hmm. and we could have done better in terms of trying to create a shared society mm -hmm. on this little postage stamp planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the late Martin McGuinness, when I spoke to him about it, I said the thing that, that, that would really help me, Martin, would be if you would stop saying that I, as in unionism, left you no choice mm -hmm. but to join the IRA, because in my view, if you pick up a gun and you pull the trigger, you choose to. Mm -hmm. If you detonate a bomb, you choose to press the button. Now, you can say, ah, but, as he said to me, you didn't grow up in the bog side as I grew up with the oppression that I was living under. Mm -hmm. I say, yeah, okay, but if, if you said you made the choice, I can then say, well, I think you made a really bad choice, but let's deal with the legacy, mm -hmm. as we're going to deal with the legacy of what unionism mm -hmm. has done. And to my mind, if we were all able to do that and say, as you say, none of us has actually clean hands on this. Mm -hmm. We can say we can't change it, but we can work in unison as a community to mm -hmm. tackle the legacy. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. if you do that up front, mm -hmm. you change the dynamic and you say to the population, you can believe in us. Mm -hmm. We're giving you a little bit of hope here. Mm -hmm. Linda, you would like to come in there? I recently did an interview actually in relation to some research that's being done around apologies and I can't remember the exact figure, but it was in the hundreds, the numbers of times that Republicans have apologised. And if you asked people, have Republicans ever apologised for what, what has happened or, or what they've done, I guarantee you uh, quite a substantial number of them would say I don't recall any apology. So I suppose... I, I, and I can't really grasp why that is. And sometimes I think it's because there are none so deaf as those who don't want to hear. And I, I do think that if, if you're open to it, if you genuinely want to believe that people are, are being honest, and I don't think any of those apologies were said for any reason other than they were genuinely meant. And I was asked what, what I believed you should get in return for an apology, and I said, apology to, to me is like a gift. If you give someone a gift, you give it to them, it is theirs, they can do whatever they want with it. If they want to put it in the bin, that is their choice. If they want to cherish it for the rest of their lives, that is their choice. But you should give it in the spirit that you genuinely mean it. And how it's received, you cannot control. And, and that is the truth. We, we can't control how people receive apologies, but Republicans have apologised on numerous can, occasions. Can yeah. I, may I come in? Because I, I appreciate what you're, you're, you're sharing there, Linda, and it's good. Martin McGuinness, um, with whom I was very friendly and treasured my friendship with him and miss him greatly, but he was in my church on a number of occasions, and on one occasion had to come into the pulpit, which didn't go down a treat with everybody. I can imagine that. Aye. And afterwards, a man whose brother was in the UDR, uh, a major, and who was shot uh, coming home from a night's entertainment in his dress kit by the IRA, uh, he, uh, he said to me afterwards, he says, David, I wasn't just thrilled by who you invited into the pulpit today, but he says, I have to tell you this, Martin used words in the pulpit today that I've been waiting 40 years to hear, and he said, it was worth having them there. Now, there, there, there has been no equivalent that I can recall to that which Gusty Spence did. But regardless of that, I think we need to bring everybody together. The Irish government, my goodness, my side, the, the Protestant tradition sort of think the border was open in the past and the terrorists could do their stuff, retreat back over, and extradition was elongated. That's the perception that we have. Perception is, is, is reality. So I think there's an opportunity for the Irish government to be there to say some things. The British government, the, 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 the Ministry of Defence has to be there to say things. Similar to what David Cameron said, it would open up the sky and the rainbow would appear and we would be thinking, gosh, uh, all the efforts that people like uh, uh, the, 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 the cohort of 
politicians, senior politicians that come in to join our local politicians. I mean, Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and George Mitchell and Bertie Ahern and so the list goes on. The amount of time they devoted to try and get us out of the darkness into the light, I think it would all become again worthwhile. But we need to hear stuff. And we need to hear stuff from former IRA terrorists and we need to hear stuff from former UVF, UDA terrorists and from RUC, PSNI and British Army. Look, there's n if we're doing it together, I think it would make a huge difference and it could be the beginning of, of, of a journey that would allow everybody to see we're, 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 we're ready and able to move forward. Andre, you want to come in there? I'm thinking that, um, you know, in that wider conversation that you have um, in this project about how we build a shared Ireland, mm. you know, the role for that is so important. So when you're talking about the Irish government making statements of acknowledgement and all of the other actors making statements of acknowledgement, I think there is certainly a role to build trust in a future. Whether that future is going to be more localised or on a more island-wide scale, there is value to this no matter what. But in parallel to it and alongside it, there must be historical clarification because those, those statements cannot be based on lies. So, you know, for people most hurt and whose, um, whether that injury they carry is because of something that, that was denied to them or where very clearly lies were told afterwards. I think that unless you have the official records clarified, then the statements of acknowledgement ring very hollow. And only law can do that, because they were legal processes that told the lies in the first place. So for, you know, for example, the Bala Murphy inquest that we know we're going through wranglings at the moment, those families' main objective is to have the record straightened so that their parents and their brothers and sisters are no longer labelled gunmen and gunwomen. That for them is repeated ad nauseum. They have to have that, that clarified first. And then if there are processes of acknowledgement and reconciliation to participate in, it is only then that they will be able to participate in that with a good heart. And really that the rest of the world can appreciate its significance. And I think that, you know, if we're going to if we're going to do that, have it, recognizing the people who have been hidden in uh, previously, the people like we've not, we've already mentioned former prisoners people who've been punishment beaten, but there's particularly something about children and women whose experience has been completely overlooked during our conflict and often were the most harmed during our conflict. Um, you know, so we, we need to appreciate that and insert them into those official records. And that's why the processes I think that Mike in particular was so involved in were so important because they, they made those processes official. The, the archive process, which people reacted, responded to overwhelmingly as a good idea. So we will have an official record of those previously hidden experiences. Mike, I really liked um, your suggestion, and I heard you say it before, about the leaders or whoever, mm -hmm. starting up and making a statement of intent before the process begins. I think that's uh, that's an excellent idea. But can I just ask you, Mike, what's your, um, ha have other countries, how have they dealt with a post-conflict um, legacy? And for example, South Africa or any other countries that? Well, when I was in the Victims Commission, we did, we did look at this. And of course, the obvious one is South Africa, but it's by far not the only one. No. Uh, and the main thing they did, of course, was this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it seems to me that the evidence is that the, the more we are removed from that, the less satisfied people are reflecting on their experience in that commission. But certainly when, when I was in our Victims Commission, there were, there were four of us. There was Brendan McAllister, uh, Bertha McDougall, Patricia McBride and myself. So we did represent a, quite a broad range uh, of backgrounds. Uh, and we were unanimous in, in deciding that we couldn't find anything uh, globally that you could cut and paste and use in the Northern Ireland, Ireland uh, context. In, in terms of truth, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, it's a holy grail uh, which cannot be achieved. Uh, and very early in the uh, Eames-Bradley process, the consultative group stopped talking about truth recovery and started talking about information recovery to recognise that fact. And I've heard politicians 
like Jerry Kelly say, no, we, we can't access the full truth. And that's not a political statement. That is not him trying to say, we in republicanism are not going to divvy up everything. That's just an acknowledgement of the fact that at this distance from the start of the troubles, we're not going to be able to dig up the full truth. Uh, but in terms of what Andrew was talking about, I was very keen that we had an official archive. So if, if we look at it on, on the, the five W's, who, what, when, where, and why, who is difficult if you want to know the names of individuals? If you want to know the groups, was it the army, was it the UDA, was it the INL, whatever, yeah, we can do that. What, when, and where are facts. Mm -hmm. So I, I normally use the example of my family business. Okay, what, it was a family business that was blown up. When, 25th of January 1973, where? Hall Street, West, Belfast City Centre. Yeah. All facts. Why? No idea. Yeah. And will we ever find out? No, we won't. And the why is the difficulty. Yeah, that's very So true. if you allow people, if we put down every troubles-related incident, chronologically, like a spine, these are all facts, the when, where, and why. Sorry, what, where, when. And then you can let people like a rib on the spine, say, the blowing up of the family business uh, destroyed my father at 49 years of age because in that moment every certainty in his life disappeared, every responsibility remained. Mm -hmm. Wife, children, car, house, all the rest. Uh, somebody else mightn't want to talk about a specific, they might just want to say, well, I grew up through the troubles and here's my experience of growing up in Lenadoon with the army all and the police all over us. And we should all be confident enough in our narrative, to leave it in the hope the future generations will say that's got an authenticity to it. And as Linda said earlier on, it won't be an orange narrative and a green narrative. There'll be hundreds, maybe thousands of different narratives. But if we do that, at least we're, we're leaving an impression of the human cost of the conflict. And if we ever forget the human cost of conflict, there's a danger we will repeat it. Linda, you want to come in? I think in relation to Micah's talk there about the oral history archive, as, as was under, I, I actually said it a few times over the past few months in particular, whenever it's become so contentious around the Stormont House Agreement and what was agreed and what wasn't agreed and what we're going to do in the future. And I am really concerned about what is going to happen around the Stormont House mechanisms, to be honest. But the oral history archive for me is vitally important and nobody talks about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is the one element that is least talked about that is most important because that is what's going to be there that is what's going to be there for future generations that is what people who will never know anything about the troubles who will never know anything about any any of us maybe sitting in this room who will have no real experience not even within their own families even talked about experience never mind lived experience and the oral history archive <coughs> is what they're going to have and it will that is where you will get the much broader story and Andre has already alluded to it around the the women and the children, and I mean, as, as I've already talked about earlier, the wives and the children of ex-prisoners, as well as all those who, who were killed and injured, because the women of the ex-prisoners, the wives and the children, they were left outside to deal with real life. Mm. They were left outside, in very, very many cases, having to, you know, protect their mm -hmm. loved one who was in prison yeah. from what was going on in their lives outside because they felt like they didn't want to burden them further mm -hmm. you know by, by bringing the troubles of the outside into them so i mean the, there there are and many the, many the, stories and in did. you know we, we privileged um the and quite rightly the site of long cash with mm -hmm. a cage and with the hospital and what's there mm -hmm. but the first thing to be destroyed was the quaker site and the visits that were on the Long Cash site were Which would mean hundreds so much of more thousands of women and children and fathers yeah. and brothers went through. Yeah. But we demolished that immediately because that experience wasn't valued, whereas this other experience was valued. And that tells us something about that. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, in a recent study by the University of Ulster, they found people living in Northern Ireland had the highest recorded rate of post-traumatic stress disorder of any studied country in the world. Reverend David, is enough being done to help and what needs to be done to help people with post-traumatic stress disorder and even people that haven't been officially diagnosed with this title? Mm. You know, it still doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Mm. It's a huge problem and probably we're only aware of the tip of the iceberg. 
Um, I mean, having served in Afghanistan um, as hospital chaplain and seeing the horrible things that I did uh, in the operating theatre, I, I know a little bit about post-traumatic stress because uh, for um, several, for at least maybe three years after I came back, the sound of a Chinook helicopter sort of made me sort of um, shake because out of those Chinook helicopters, the, the, the convoy of bodies was, was carried off, some of them in body bags. Um, obviously, uh, their, their, their lives had finished. I, uh, there, there's, a, there's a very wise proverb in the book of Ezekiel which said, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth have been set on edge. Uh, it's, the, it's, the, um, it's the impact and, and, and the possibility and maybe more the probability of what has happened in the past being passed down through the generations and that leads me all the more to see the urgency of trying to get some resolution to this very complex issue that we, that we call the past. And I'm inclined to think that um, there's a segment of our population that um, maybe could help us more than we dare to even think or imagine, and that's young people. And I've been working in schools with young people, over 400 schools, and the wisdom that is within even primary schools. I've, uh, I asked schools to write pledges, peace pledges, 25 words, the kind of things we think everybody should be doing if we're going to live better together. There's a wee primary school in County Tyrone, you know what they say? Don't say impossible, because then nothing will change. We can all do better. Isn't that incredible? Mm -hmm. I, 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 I was talking earlier about a day of acknowledgement, which I think we have to seriously uh, consider, and I think there, 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 there is a growing interest in it. But, you know, there's no one-off magic moment that's going to resolve our situation. And therefore, when we look to the likes of South Africa and even Australia, the introduction of days of reconciliation, a, a sorry day, I would love a pledge day to be introduced into Northern Ireland, well, well, led by our young people. I think if that day was to be introduced, which I would say is a good thing, it would need to be the start of this process, gathering some legs. But Young people um, uh, have um, a capacity to shine a light on the path that could help us all see a wee bit more clearly. Um, we sort of try to, we, we imagine all oh, their future leaders. They're leaders now. Mm -hmm. uh, not, we don't want to postpone their opportunity of, of helping us uh, to some elastic kind of future. So here, here is another a school, a, a, a post-primary a post school in, in West Belfast. Let's be the generation to go down in, the his, in history. Let's be the generation to make an important change. I think they could help us maybe steer a path that would assist us to cope with post-traumatic stress, that would allow us maybe to find a new way out of the maze uh, of, the, of, of the troubles and, 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 and um, show us uh, what we all need to do. And you know what we all need to do regardless of what has happened in the past? We have to reach out to each other. And that's just not me as a church man saying that. We need to reach out to each other. My goodness, the lesson of history. And when people reach out to each other and, and choose to walk together and struggle together, a big difference can, can transpire, and that's what we need. Mike, you want to come in? Yes, well, I think, I think poor mental health and well-being is a, is a 21st century problem, particularly in the developed world. Uh, and our share of it is exacerbated by the legacy of the Troubles. And I think there's two things we need to do, and we've done the first, which is awareness. Um, I think my first um, public um, speech on mental health was was party conference in 2012. On a Saturday, I went to Stormont on the Monday, and an MLA stopped me in the corridor, and he said, mental health, what's that all about? Mm. And walked off disgusted. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't find one of the 90 MLAs today mm. who doesn't get it. So right. in terms of awareness, I think we've done that bit. The second bit is then what are we actually going to do about it? Mm -hmm. uh, and we're beginning 
just beginning to start. Uh, Linda and I have had a couple of meetings with Health and the Executive Office about a thing called the Regional Trauma Network, okay. which is a new uh, about two dozen people who are being trained up to work in the community. And as I said previously, pills and tablets have their place, but it's about having people in the community who can look and say, Mike's something wrong with Mike today. I'm going to keep an eye on him. And, and it's that local knowledge and ability to reach out that I think is what is, what is missing. We also, I believe, and I'll, I'll be back at this if and when the Assembly's up and running again, we need to build a world-class trauma centre, not just as a legacy for the troubles, but look at what we're, we're discovering about Muckamore on a daily basis. <coughs> Muckamore has to go, and we need to replace it with the best facility on planet Earth, but also one for training uh, and for research. And I think that would be a magnificent legacy project one where we could say the next time a white supremacist shoots up a primary school in America, send your children to us for respite, because we know how, to, how Funny, to handle this. Just on that, Mike, someone once said to me that instead of having all our murals and monuments to our dead, that we should build a state-of-the-art world-beaten cancer hospital in the foot of the Sperns or somewhere, and let it be a living, breathing mm -hmm. monument to the three and a half thousand people that died and let it be you know leading the way in something like cancer and you would have people from America and professors and doctors coming to you know make this a breathing mm -hmm. living monument for all people that died here. Well I, I would agree except I would do it for, for mental health Yeah. and the interesting thing and, and we'll all know this if you go around schools if you go to youth groups and they're talking about the issues that affect them if mental health isn't number one it's in the top three, it's on the podium. And that wasn't the case a few years ago. Yeah. So it's getting traction, uh, but it just needs more resource and more focus. I think also in, in terms of what we're talking about, and, and Mike's right, we've done a number of meetings. I mean, Andre is aware of this, as are all of the other groups. And the groups have come together around the stuff around the Regional Trauma Network because obviously all of those who they're in contact with have a very vested interest in it. But I think that we need to be very focused on the on the bottom up approach. We need to know what it is people need mm -hmm. before we have people at the top deciding, I know what you need, I'm going to give it to you, here's how it's going to work. Mm -hmm. Everything we do needs to be bottom up. Community mm -hmm. has to be your starting point. You bring it from there and you build whatever you build from that starting point. Exactly. If, if we do anything from the point of view, I don't know what's best for anyone. I hardly know what's best for me. So I, I think that, you know, that the reality of life is if you, if you want to know what's best for someone, ask them. Ask them what's best for them and you build it from there. You don't start your house by putting the roof up. You start your house by putting the foundations in. Well, well Linda, seeing that we have two current MLAs here, yourself and Mike, um, now I appreciate... Don't you ask for commitment on some kind of building? No, 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 <laughs> not a commitment, but like... You know, I suppose there's no point asking me, and with all due respect, maybe Reverend David or Andre, these are the two people here that are elected. Um, so I appreciate Stormont isn't up and running, but what tangible thing can be kick-started today, tomorrow? I'm not saying on the back of this podcast, but... On legacy? No, on, on mental health and about Northern Ireland being identified as having the highest post-traumatic stress disorder of any study carried out in the world. What can be done to address this now? Well, I actually think what I've just said is where it needs to start because there, there isn't, we, we keep trying to put in fixes, you know, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing things through our health services, health service has its part to play, but we keep trying to put in these fixes and there are numerous amounts of services out there in our communities that people don't know yeah. about. Even organisations who should be signposting people into mental health, different types of mental health services, aren't aware of everything that's out there what we actually need the first the starting point is let's find out what we what we actually do have not just in the trusts not just in the department but what we have in the community what we have in the voluntary sector what we have right around us in every single organization do a proper audit of what is out there and make sure that everybody in any community knows what is there and i, I have recently actually been doing a bit of work with an organization in, in my own town of coal island and, and that is the conclusion at every meeting that everybody comes to. Now what all we need is for people to go and do it. And, and hopefully I think that is going to be the next step. But 
I think that that is vitally important because yeah, yeah. I mean Andrew will tell you better about West Belfast I don't know one and again Mike would have experience in his own constituency and I'm quite sure all of your experiences are the same that you deal right. with people every day that don't even know what's out there that could help them I, I, I let Andrew in but yeah absolutely mm-hmm. the special rapporteur for on um, truth and transitional justice Pablo de Grief came here actually right in the middle of the Stormont House agreement stuff um, a couple of years ago and one of his findings was that we are really poor here at, at being able to record the lessons of what is already there so in, ter- in terms of um, mental health and well-being there is has been huge community response to and mental ill health because there wasn't anything in the health service during those times so you did have community and voluntary responses that some of it, some of which was incredibly effective and remains to be but of course they end up being under resourced underprivileged and they're not seen as the experts when in fact they have become the experts mm-hmm. and there's huge learning to be done from there but the best thing that could happen right now is exactly what Linda and Mike are talking about, is joining up those approaches. Right now, people sitting in the health trusts don't know what's happening on the ground, responding to children with, who are vulnerable or adults who are living with PTSD. That is an incredible gap that really we don't appreciate, I think, because we're firefighting all the time. Mm-hmm. That develops the regional trauma network or service that we are talking about. Once we start to join those dots and really learn the lessons of what has gone there before. And in terms of statutory provision, we we do need to see a development of psychiatry and clinical psychology and build that staffing. But right now, there ha- up until now, there hasn't been a focus about what is actually needed from the health service along with resourcing the community and voluntary responses that are professional and have been incredibly effective. A couple of years ago, in, in response to a suicide in, in Newton Arts, where I'm, I'm based, I was part of a group who set up uh, the Arts Suicide Awareness Group. And one of the first things we discovered was the point Linda was making, was that it wasn't that there was a lack of services, it was there were so many. We discovered through the council there were over two dozen reference points between the statutory Mm. and the voluntary sector. So if you're feeling very low, particularly if you're feeling potentially suicidal, and you go on your internet and you get 24 groups with phone numbers, you don't have the capacity to figure out the right one for Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things we're working on to try and make it Mm -hmm. much simpler. We're also been going around businesses in the town with a thing called Safe Talk which is a half-day training program. doesn't make you a counsellor. The two things it does is it, it teaches you for the signs to look out for yeah. when somebody's low, and secondly, how to signpost them yeah. to the professionals. So we're particularly talking to people who run coffee shops, people who are hairdressers, taxi drivers, the sort of people who are likely to engage with the public. And we're getting a very good uptake, not just because they want to help their customers, but also for their own staff. They're saying this will be really good for us. And I would hope eventually that all MLAs will encourage something similar uh, in their own patches, because that's just practical. And as Linda said, it's bottom up. Uh, The other thing I would love to see, and I hope it will be one of our big asks in these talks, is a mental health champion. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not talking about another million pound commission, I'm talking about one individual. The big mental health charities have said they will support in kind. It's probably going to be possible to pay that person out of philanthropic money, so it won't cost the taxpayer a penny. But this would be an individual who just campaigns from the ground up, but also goes around the departments and looks at legislation and just kind of proofs it to make sure it's taking due regard of people who have poor mental health. And just when you're on that, when do you think this person will be in place, Mike? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am optimistic. I I think we'll be back up and running this calendar year. You do, honestly? I do. This calendar year? Yes. And I hope he's right. So we agree on that. (laughs) Very good. Mm. And then it's it's not a big step to appoint a mental health champion if you do it Mm. on the terms I am, which which is to say we're not not... creating a new commission and staffing it, finding premises and all the rest. Reverend David? Can I, can I just stay with that and yes. perhaps introduce um, uh, a bespoke micro-model that we're currently working on in Derry, Londonderry? Yes. And that is, Linda, you're quite right, That has that is from the bottom up. We're involving uh, the young people who are at the coalface. They're part of this uh, Pathway to Peace um, Schools initiative 
and um, a, a, a component of that is um, a module for the Northern Ireland curriculum around peace. Uh, and what is peace? What fractures peace? Not bombs and bullets anymore. It's these uh, peer pressures. It's the, uh, the 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 um, the the feelings that young people have. They're 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 not they're not succeeding. Um, and and it's it's the problems with addiction and and all of this is 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 destroying their mental peace of mind. So what is peace? What fractures peace? And then how do you build peace? So we're hoping to have this module incorporated into the Learning for Life and Work bit of the Northern Ireland curriculum. We're going to sell it to principals in the Foyle Learning Community later this month, and it would be we're going to pilot it. But imagine. This is designed by young people. So it's not adults sort of coming in, imagining what is the struggles that young people are on. It is, it is young people saying, this is where the rubber's touching the road. This is what we think will help us and help everybody else across the country cope with the stress and the problems we're living with. Exciting. Okay, folks, we're 55 minutes in here and time is against us. So I would like to just go around you all one last time. And if you could give us maybe a summary of what you took out of the conversation today or any advice for our political representatives as we move forward. Can I come to you first, maybe, Andre? Well, I, I think it's been an incredibly encouraging hour where we've touched on so much. For me, you know, um, giving, giving people the dignity of their human rights, giving them the dignity of respect and acknowledging their real lived experience, you know, and in a way that we can respect each other and the sky doesn't fall in when we have these conversations. It hasn't been one bit toxic. It has been a really positive conversation that is a contributor to peace. And I think this conversation can absolutely build rather than take away from what we're trying to achieve. Mike, your final thoughts, please. Well, it is certainly the most difficult challenge um, that, that we have. And within it, I think the most difficult bit is truth, justice uh, and acknowledgement on a case-by-case -case basis. But that shouldn't stop us uh, trying uh, to, to find the truth and the justice for people on a case-by-case -case basis. But nor should we ignore all the other bits that are involved in dealing with the past, such as mental health and well-being. And I accept these are concentric circles. There are people whose mental health yes. is bad purely because they have not had truth and justice. But I think if, if we could move away slightly from the nothing is agreed until everything is agreed and trust each other mm -hmm. that we can take the bites out of the elephant that we are currently ready to take. That actually will be good for people, it'll maybe encourage society, and it will give us the confidence and momentum to tackle the more difficult bits. I really like that idea, Mike. I genuinely do. Linda, your final thoughts, please. Well, for me, it is extremely important that we deal with the legacy. I don't think that you will get proper reconciliation until you do deal with the, the legacy issues because people are so embittered by not having their human rights respected, by not having got the accountability which they want to see, and by not having got the information. The, the, tr the truth, or as Mike has already alluded to, as much of the truth as you can possibly get. And we have people right across our communities who are in that position. And I do think that it's vitally important that those people are able to say, I don't have to, because part of the, the burden that people are carrying is, I need to do this before I have to pass it on to my children. And that, there are people who are dying panicking. Yeah. that they're going to pass this on to their children. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to pass it on to my child, so I fully understand. And I would like, I suppose, just one other thing to say. I've heard many people saying, why can't we just draw a line in the sand? Why can't we just draw a line in the sand and move on? Because if we don't deal with what happened, it will happen again. That's why we can't draw a line in the sand. And I think, appropriately, we'll give the last word to <laughs> Reverend... David, and I'm going to refer in my last word to an incredible message written by a school in County Tyrone in an area where the principal would tell me still is difficult. But here's what they came up with. Time has moved on like the melody of a song. Let us build a road to our shared future, a road of unity, forgiveness and hope. Uh, maybe it sounds like a dream of uh, a distant and unknown future, but, you know, we got to dream, and through our conversations, maybe that's what we're doing. And in dreaming, 
We want to work hard to turn those dreams to reality and please God out of what we're discussing together with a multitude of conversations, the seeds for seeds of peace will will fall into the ground. They don't grow up immediately, but slowly and surely they they they, they come up and they allow for uh, new attitudes and uh, and new opinions and please God a new future. Thank you very much, uh, Reverend David. Um, thank you very much, um, Andre, Linda, Reverend David, and Mike, for giving us um, uh, hour of your time today. I certainly thoroughly enjoyed it, and I know our listeners will. That's it, folks. Stay tuned for the next episode. Speak soon. Bye bye.